Article 8 of the Defense of the Augsburg Confession by Philip Melanchthon. Translated by F. Bente and W. H. T. Dow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of Human Traditions in the Church. Augustana 15. In the 15th article, they receive the first part in which we say that such ecclesiastical rites are to be observed as can be observed without sin, and are a profit in the Church for tranquility and good order. They altogether condemn the second part, in which we say that human traditions instituted to appease God, to merit grace and make satisfaction for sins, are contrary to the gospel. Although in the confession itself, when treating of the distinction of meats, we have spoken at sufficient length concerning traditions, yet certain things should be briefly recounted here. Although we supposed that the adversaries would defend human traditions on other grounds, Yet we did not think that this would come to pass, namely, that they would condemn this article, that we do not merit the remission of sins or grace by the observance of human traditions. Since, therefore, this article has been condemned, we have an easy and plain case. The adversaries are now openly Judaizing, are openly suppressing the gospel by the doctrines of demons. For Scripture calls traditions doctrines of demons, when it is taught that religious rites are serviceable to merit the remission of sins and grace. For they are then obscuring the gospel, the benefit of Christ, and the righteousness of faith. For they are just as directly contrary to Christ and to the gospel as are fire and water to one another. The gospel teaches that by faith we receive freely, for Christ's sake, the remission of sins, and are reconciled to God. The adversaries, on the other hand, appoint another mediator, namely these traditions. On account of these they wish to acquire remission of sins. On account of these they wish to appease God's wrath. But Christ clearly says, Matthew 15, 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We have above discussed at length that men are justified by faith when they believe that they have a reconciled God, not because of our works, but gratuitously, for Christ's sake. It is certain that this is the doctrine of the gospel, because Paul clearly teaches Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Now these men say that men merit the remission of sins by these human observances. What else is this than to appoint another justifier, a mediator other than Christ? Paul says to the Galatians 5.4, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. That is, if you hold that by observance of the law you merit to be accounted righteous before God, Christ will profit you nothing. For what need of Christ have those who hold that they are righteous by their own observance of the law? God has set forth Christ with the promise that on account of this mediator and not on account of our righteousness, he wishes to be propitious to us. But these men hold that God is reconciled and propitious because of the traditions, and not because of Christ. Therefore they take away from Christ the honor of mediator. Neither, so far as the matter is concerned, is there any difference between our traditions and the ceremonies of Moses. Paul condemns the ceremonies of Moses just as he condemns traditions for the reason that they were regarded as works which merit righteousness before God. 
thus the office of Christ and the righteousness of faith were obscured. Therefore, the law being removed, and traditions being removed, he contends that the remission of sins has been promised not because of our works, but freely, because of Christ, if only by faith we receive it. For the promise is not received except by faith. Since, therefore, by faith we receive the remission of sins, since by faith we have a propitious God for Christ's sake, it is an error and impiety to declare that because of these observances we merit the remission of sins. If anyone should say here that we do not merit the remission of sins, but that those who have already been justified by these traditions merit grace, Paul again replies, Galatians 2.17, that Christ would be the minister of sin if, after justification, we must hold that henceforth we are not accounted righteous for Christ's sake, but we ought first, by other observances, to merit that we be accounted righteous. Likewise, Galatians 3.15, Though it be but a man's covenant, no man addeth thereto. Therefore, neither to God's covenant, who promises that for Christ's sake he will be propitious to us, ought we to add that we must first, through these observances, attain such merit as to be regarded as accepted and righteous. However, what need is there of a long discussion? No tradition was instituted by the Holy Fathers with the design that it should merit the remission of sins or righteousness. But they have been instituted for the sake of good order in the Church, and for the sake of tranquility. And when anyone wishes to institute certain works to merit the remission of sins or righteousness, how will he know that these works please God, since he has not the testimony of God's word? How, without God's command and word, Will he render men certain of God's will? Does he not everywhere in the prophets prohibit men from instituting without his commandment peculiar rites of worship? In Ezekiel twenty eighteen and 19 it is written, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. If men are allowed to institute religious rites, and through these rites merit grace, the religious rites of all the heathen will have to be approved, and the rites instituted by Jeroboam, 1 Kings 12, 26 and following, and by others outside of the law, will have to be approved. For what difference does it make? If we have been allowed to institute religious rites that are profitable for meriting grace or righteousness, why was the same not allowed the heathen and the Israelites? But the religious rites of the heathen and the Israelites were rejected for the very reason that they held that by these they merited remission of sins and righteousness, and yet did not know the highest service of God, the righteousness of faith. Lastly, whence are we rendered certain that rites instituted by men without God's command justify, inasmuch as nothing can be affirmed of God's will without God's word? What if God does not approve these services? How, therefore, do the adversaries affirm that they justify? Without God's word and testimony this cannot be affirmed. And Paul says, Romans 14.23, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. But as these services have no testimony of God's word, consciences must doubt as to whether they please God. And what need is there of words on a subject so manifest? If the adversaries defend these human services as meriting justification, grace, and the remission of sins, 
they simply establish the kingdom of Antichrist. For the kingdom of Antichrist is a new service of God, devised by human authority, rejecting Christ, just as the kingdom of Mohammed has services and works through which it wishes to be justified before God. Nor does it hold that men are gratuitously justified before God by faith, for Christ's sake. Thus the papacy also will be a part of the kingdom of Antichrist, if it thus defends human services as justifying. For the honor is taken away from Christ, when they teach that we are not justified gratuitously by faith for Christ's sake, but by such services. Especially when they teach that such services are not only useful for justification, but are also necessary, as they hold above in Article 7 where they condemn us for saying that unto true unity of the church it is not necessary that rites instituted by men should everywhere be alike. Daniel 11.38 indicates that new human services will be the very form and constitution of the kingdom of Antichrist. For he says thus, But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and the God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stones. Here he describes new services, because he says that such a God will be worshipped as the fathers were ignorant of. For although the holy fathers themselves had both rites and traditions, yet they did not hold that these matters are useful or necessary for justification. They did not obscure the glory and office of Christ, but taught that we are justified by faith for Christ's sake, and not for the sake of these human services but they observe human rights for the sake of bodily advantage, that the people might know at what time they should assemble, that for the sake of example all things in the churches might be done in order and becomingly, lastly, that the common people might receive a sort of training. For the distinctions of times and the variety of rights are of service in admonishing the common people. The fathers had these reasons for maintaining the rights, and for these reasons we also judge it to be right that traditions, good customs, be maintained. And we are greatly surprised that the adversaries, contrary to the entire scriptures of the apostles, contrary to the Old and New Testaments, contend for another design of traditions, namely that they may merit the remission of sins, grace, or justification. What else is this than to honor God with gold and silver and precious stones, as Daniel says, that is, to hold that God becomes reconciled by a variety in clothing, ornaments, and by similar rites, many kinds of church decorations, banners, tapers, as are infinite in human traditions. Paul writes to the Colossians 2.23 that traditions have a show of wisdom, and they indeed have, for this good order is very becoming in the church, and for this reason is necessary. But human reason because it does not understand the righteousness of faith, naturally imagines that such works justify men because they reconcile God, and so forth. Thus the common people among the Israelites thought, and by this opinion increased such ceremonies, just as among us they have grown in the monasteries, as in our time one altar after another and one church after another is founded. Thus human reason judges also of bodily exercises, of fasts, Although the end of these is to restrain the flesh, reason falsely adds that they are services which justify. As Thomas writes, fasting avails for the extinguishing and the prevention of guilt. These are the words of Thomas. 
Thus the semblance of wisdom and righteousness in such works deceives men, and the examples of the saints are added when they say, St. Francis wore a cap, and so forth. And when men desire to imitate these, they imitate for the most part the outward exercises. Their faith they do not imitate. After this semblance of wisdom and righteousness has deceived men, then infinite evils follow. The gospel concerning the righteousness of faith in Christ is obscured, and vain confidence in such works succeeds. Then the commandments of God are obscured. These works irrigate to themselves the title of a perfect and spiritual life, and are far preferred to the works of God's commandments, the true, holy, good works, as the works of one's own calling, the administration of the state, the management of a family, married life, the bringing up of children. Compared with those ceremonies, the latter are judged to be profane, so that they are exercised by many with some doubt of conscience. For it is known that many have abandoned the administration of the state and married life in order to embrace these observances as better and holier, have gone into cloisters in order to become holy and spiritual. Nor is this enough. When the persuasion has taken possession of minds that such observances are necessary to justification, consciences are in miserable anxiety because they cannot exactly fulfill all observances. For how many are there who could enumerate all these observances? There are immense books, yea, whole libraries, containing not a syllable concerning Christ, concerning faith in Christ, concerning the good works of one's own calling, but which only collect the traditions and interpretations by which they are sometimes rendered quite rigorous and sometimes relaxed. They write of such precepts as of fasting for forty days, the four canonical hours for prayer, and so forth. How that most excellent man, Gerson, is tortured while he searches for the grades and extent of the precepts. Nevertheless, he is not able to fix on medication, in a definite grade, and yet cannot find any sure grade where he could confidently promise the heart assurance and peace. Meanwhile, he deeply deplores the dangers to godly consciences which this rigid interpretation of the traditions produces. Against this semblance of wisdom and righteousness and human rights which deceives men, let us therefore fortify ourselves by the word of God, and let us know, first of all, that these neither merit before God the remission of sins or justification, nor are necessary for justification. We have above cited some testimonies, and Paul is full of them. To the Colossians 2, 16, 17, he clearly says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Here now he embraces at the same time both the law of Moses and human traditions, in order that the adversaries may not elude these testimonies according to their custom, upon the ground that Paul is speaking only of the law of Moses but he clearly testifies here that he is speaking of human traditions. However, the adversaries do not see what they are saying. If the gospel says that the ceremonies of Moses, which were divinely instituted, do not justify, how much less do human traditions justify? Neither have the bishops the power to institute services as though they justified or were necessary for justification. Yea, the apostles, Acts 15.10, say, 
Why tempt ye God to put a yoke, and so forth? Where Peter declares this purpose to burden the church a great sin, and Paul forbids the Galatians 5.1 to be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Therefore it is the will of the apostles that this liberty remain in the church, that no services of the law or of traditions be judged as necessary, just as in the law ceremonies were for a time necessary, lest the righteousness of faith be obscured, if men judge that these services merit justification, or are necessary for justification. Many seek in traditions various epiakea, mitigations, in order to heal consciences, and yet they do not find any sure grades by which to free consciences from these chains. But just as Alexander once for all solved the Gordian knot by cutting it with his sword when he could not disentangle it, so the apostles once for all free consciences from traditions, especially if they are taught to merit justification. The apostles compel us to oppose this doctrine by teaching and examples. They compel us to teach that traditions do not justify, that they are not necessary for justification that no one ought to frame or receive traditions with the opinion that they merit justification. Then, even though any one should observe them, let him observe them without superstition as civil customs, just as without superstition soldiers are clothed in one way and scholars in another, as I regard my wearing of a German costume among the Germans, and a French costume among the French as an observance of the usage of the land, and not for the purpose of being saved thereby. The apostles violate traditions and are excused by Christ, for the example was to be shown the Pharisees that these services are unprofitable. And if our people neglect some traditions that are of little advantage, they are now sufficiently excused when these are required as though they merit justification. For such an opinion with regard to traditions is impious, an error not to be endured. But we cheerfully maintain the old traditions, as the three high festivals, the observance of Sunday, and the like, made in the church for the sake of usefulness and tranquility. And we interpret them in a more moderate way, to the exclusion of the opinion which holds that they justify. And our enemies falsely accuse us of abolishing good ordinances in church discipline. For we can truly declare that the public form of the churches is more becoming with us than with the adversaries, that the true worship of God is observed in our churches in a more Christian, honorable way. And if any one will consider it aright, we conform to the canons more truly than do the adversaries. For the adversaries, without shame, tread underfoot the most honorable canons, just as they do Christ and the gospel. With the adversaries, unwilling celebrants, and those hired for pay, and very frequently only for pay, celebrate the masses. They sing psalms, not that they may learn or pray, for the greater part do not understand a verse in the psalms, but for the sake of the service, as though this work were a service, or at least for the sake of reward. All this they cannot deny. Some who are upright among them are even ashamed of this traffic, and declare that the clergy is in need of reformation. With us, many use the Lord's Supper willingly and without constraint every Lord's Day, but after having been first instructed, examined, whether they know and understand anything of the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, and the Ten Commandments, and absolved. The children sing psalms in order that they may learn, become familiar with passages of Scripture. 
the people also sing Latin and German psalms, in order that they may either learn or pray. With the adversaries there is no catechization of the children whatever, concerning which even the canons give commands. With us the pastors and ministers of the churches are compelled publicly and privately to instruct and hear the youth, and this ceremony produces the best fruits. And the catechism is not a mere childish thing, as is the bearing of banners and tapers, but a very profitable instruction. Among the adversaries, in many regions, as in Italy and Spain, during the entire year no sermons are delivered except in Lent. Here they ought to cry out and justly make grievous complaint, for this means at one blow to overthrow completely all worship. For of all acts of worship, that is the greatest, most holy, most necessary, and highest, which God has required as the highest in the first and the second commandment, namely, to preach the word of God. For the ministry is the highest office in the church. Now, if this worship is omitted, how can there be knowledge of God, the doctrine of Christ, or the gospel? But the chief service of God is to teach the gospel. And when the adversaries do preach, they speak of human traditions, of the worship of saints, of consecrated water, and similar trifles, which the people justly loathe. Therefore they are deserted immediately in the beginning, after the text of the gospel has been recited. This practice may have started because the people did not wish to hear the other lies. A few better ones begin now to speak of good works, but of the righteousness of faith, of faith in Christ, of the consolation of consciences, they say nothing. Yea, this most wholesome part of the gospel they rail at with their reproaches. This blessed doctrine, the precious holy gospel, they call Lutheran. On the contrary, in our churches all the sermons are occupied with such topics as these, of repentance, of the fear of God, of faith in Christ, of the righteousness of faith, of the consolation of consciences by faith, of the exercises of faith, of prayer, what its nature should be, and that we should be fully confident that it is efficacious, that it is heard, of the cross, of the authority of magistrates and all civil ordinances, likewise how each one in his station should live in a Christian manner, and, out of obedience to the command of the Lord God, should conduct himself in reference to every worldly ordinance and law, of the distinction between the kingdom of Christ or the spiritual kingdom and political affairs, of marriage, of the education and instruction of children, of chastity, of all the offices of love. From this condition of the churches it must be judged that we diligently maintain church discipline and godly ceremonies and good church customs. And of the mortification of the flesh and discipline of the body we thus teach, just as the confession states, that a true and not a feigned mortification occurs through the cross and afflictions by which God exercises us, when God breaks our will, inflicts the cross, and trouble. In these we must obey God's will, as Paul says, Romans 12.1, Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And these are the spiritual exercises of fear and faith, but in addition to this mortification which occurs through the cross, which does not depend upon our will, there is also a voluntary kind of exercise necessary, of which Christ says, Luke 21.34, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, 
and Paul, 1 Corinthians 9.27, I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, and so forth. And these exercises are to be undertaken not because they are services that justify, but in order to curb the flesh, lest satiety may overpower us and render us secure and indifference. The result of which is that men indulge and obey the dispositions of the flesh. This diligence ought to be perpetual, because it has the perpetual command of God, and this prescribed form of certain meats and times does nothing, as experience shows, towards curbing the flesh. For it is more luxurious and sumptuous than other feasts, for they were at greater expense, and practiced greater gluttony with fish and various Lenten meats than when the fasts were not observed, and not even the adversaries observed the form given in the canons. This topic concerning traditions contains many and difficult questions of controversy, and we have actually experienced that traditions are truly snares of consciences. When they are exacted as necessary, they torture in wonderful ways the conscience omitting any observance, as godly hearts indeed experience when in the canonical hours they have omitted a compline or offended against them in a similar way. Again, their abrogation has its own evils and its own questions. On the other hand, to teach absolute freedom has also its doubts and questions, because the common people need outward discipline and instruction. But we have an easy and plain case, because the adversaries condemn us for teaching that human traditions do not merit the remission of sins. Likewise, they regard universal traditions, as they call them, as necessary for justification, and place them in Christ's stead. Here we have Paul as a constant champion, who everywhere contends that these observances neither justify nor are necessary in addition to the righteousness of faith. And nevertheless, we teach that in these matters the use of liberty is to be so controlled that the inexperienced may not be offended and on account of the abuse of liberty may not become more hostile to the true doctrine of the gospel, or that without a reasonable cause nothing in customary rights be changed, but that, in order to cherish harmony, such old customs be observed as can be observed without sin or without great inconvenience. And in this very assembly we have shown sufficiently that for love's sake we do not refuse to observe adiaphora with others, even though they should have some disadvantage. But we have judged that such public harmony as could indeed be produced without offense to consciences ought to be preferred to all other advantages, all other less important matters. But concerning this entire subject, we shall speak after a while, when we shall treat of vows and ecclesiastical power. Of Political Order, Augustana 16. The sixteenth article the adversaries receive without any exception, in which we have confessed that it is lawful for the Christian to bear civil office, to sit in judgment, determine matters by the imperial laws, and other laws in present force, appoint just punishments, engage in just wars, act as a soldier, make legal contracts, hold property, take an oath when magistrates require it, contract marriage. Finally, that legitimate civil ordinances are good creatures of God and divine ordinances, which a Christian can use with safety. This entire topic concerning the distinction between the kingdom of Christ and a political kingdom has been explained to advantage, to the remarkably great consolation of many consciences, in the literature of our writers, 
namely, that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, inasmuch as Christ governs by the word and by preaching, to wit, beginning in the heart the knowledge of God, the fear of God and faith, eternal righteousness and eternal life. Meanwhile, it permits us outwardly to use legitimate political ordinances of every nation in which we live, just as it permits us to use medicine, or the art of building, or food, drink, air. Neither does the gospel bring new laws concerning the civil state, but commands that we obey present laws, whether they have been framed by heathen or by others, and that in this obedience we should exercise love. For Karlstadt was insane in imposing upon us the judicial laws of Moses. Concerning these subjects our theologians have written more fully, because the monks diffused many pernicious opinions in the church. They called the community of property the polity of the gospel. They said that not to hold property, not to vindicate oneself at law, not to have wife and child, were evangelical counsels. These opinions greatly obscure the gospel and the spiritual kingdom, so that it was not understood at all what the Christian or spiritual kingdom of Christ is. They concocted the secular kingdom with the spiritual, whence much trouble and seditions, harmful teaching resulted, and are dangerous to the commonwealth. For the gospel does not destroy the state or the family, buying, selling, and other civil regulations, but much rather approves them, and bids us obey them as a divine ordinance, not only on account of punishment, but also on account of conscience. Julian the Apostate, Celsus, and very many others made the objection to Christians that the gospel would rend asunder states, because it prohibited legal redress, and taught certain other things not at all suited to political association. And these questions wonderfully exercised Origen, Nazianzen, and others, although indeed they can be most readily explained, if we keep in mind the fact that the gospel does not introduce laws concerning the civil state, but is the remission of sins and the beginning of a new life in hearts of believers. Besides, it not only approves outward governments, but subjects us to them. Romans 13.1 Just as we have been necessarily placed under the laws of seasons, the changes of winter and summer, as divine ordinances. This is no obstacle to the spiritual kingdom. The gospel forbids private redress, in order that no one should interfere with the office of the magistrate, and Christ inculcates this so frequently with the design that the apostles should not think that they ought to seize the governments from those who held otherwise, just as the Jews dreamed concerning the kingdom of the Messiah, but that they might know that they ought to teach concerning the spiritual kingdom that it does not change the civil state. Therefore private redress is prohibited not by advice, but by a command. Matthew 5.39, Romans 12.19 public redress, which is made through the office of the magistrate, is not advised against but is commanded, and is a work of God, according to Paul, Romans 13, 1 and following. Now the different kinds of public redress are legal decisions, capital punishment, wars, military service. It is manifest how incorrectly many writers have judged concerning these matters. Some teachers have taught such pernicious errors that nearly all princes, lords, knights, Servants regarded their proper estate as secular, ungodly, and damnable, and so forth. 
nor can it be fully expressed in words what an unspeakable peril and damage has resulted from this to souls and consciences, because they were in the error that the gospel is an external, new, and monastic form of government, and did not see that the gospel brings eternal righteousness to hearts, teaches how a person is redeemed before God, and in his conscience, from sin, hell, and the devil, while it outwardly approves the civil state. It is also a most vain delusion that it is Christian perfection not to hold property. For Christian perfection consists not in the contempt of civil ordinances, but in dispositions of the heart, in great fear of God, in great faith, just as Abraham, David, Daniel, even in great wealth and while exercising civil power, were no less perfect than any hermits. But the monks, especially the barefoot monks, have spread this outward hypocrisy before the eyes of men, so that it could not be seen in what things true perfection exists. With what praises have they brought forward this communion of property, as though it were evangelical? But these praises have the greatest danger, especially since they differ much from the Scriptures. For Scripture does not command that property be common, but the law of the Decalogue, when it says, Exodus 20.15, Thou shalt not steal, distinguishes rights of ownership, and commands each one to hold what is his own. Wycliffe manifestly was raging when he said that priests were not allowed to hold property. There are infinite discussions concerning contracts, in reference to which good consciences can never be satisfied unless they know the rule that it is lawful for a Christian to make use of civil ordinances and laws. This rule protects consciences when it teaches that contracts are lawful before God just to the extent that the magistrates or laws approve them. This entire topic concerning civil affairs has been so clearly set forth by our theologians that very many good men occupied in the state and in business have declared that they have been greatly benefited, who before, troubled by the opinion of the monks, were in doubt as to whether the gospel allowed these civil offices and businesses. Accordingly, we have recounted these things, in order that those without also may understand that by the kind of doctrine which we follow, the authority of magistrates and the dignity of all civil ordinances are not undermined, but are all the more strengthened and that it is only this doctrine which gives true instruction as to how eminently glorious an office, full of good Christian works, the office of ruler is. The importance of these matters was greatly obscured previously by those silly monastic opinions, which far preferred the hypocrisy of poverty and humility to the state and the family, although these have God's command, while this platonic communion, monasticism, has not God's command. Of Christ's Return to Judgment, Augustana 17. The seventeenth article the adversaries receive without exception, in which we confess that at the consummation of the world Christ shall appear, and shall raise up all the dead, and shall give to the godly eternal life and eternal joys, but shall condemn the ungodly to be punished with the devil without end. Of Free Will, Augustana 18. The eighteenth article, of free will, the adversaries receive, although they add some testimonies not at all adapted to this case. They add also a declamation that neither with the Pelagians is too much to be granted to the free will, nor with the Manichians is all freedom to be denied it. 
Very well. But what difference is there between the Pelagians and our adversaries, since both hold that without the Holy Ghost men can love God and perform God's commandments with respect to the substance of the acts, and can merit grace and justification by works which reason performs by itself without the Holy Ghost? How many absurdities follow from these Pelagian opinions, which are taught with great authority in the schools? These Augustine, following Paul, refutes with great emphasis, whose judgment we have recounted above in the article of justification. Nor, indeed, do we deny liberty to the human will. The human will has liberty in the choice of works and things which reason comprehends by itself. It can, to a certain extent, render civil righteousness or the righteousness of works. It can speak of God, offer to God a certain service by an outward work, obey magistrates, parents. In the choice of an outward work, it can restrain the hands from murder, from adultery, from theft. Since there is left in human nature reason and judgment concerning objects subjected to the senses, choice between these things and the liberty and power to render civil righteousness are also left. For Scripture calls this the righteousness of the flesh, which the carnal nature, that is, reason, renders by itself without the Holy Ghost. Although the power of concupiscence is such that men more frequently obey evil dispositions than sound judgment. And the devil, who is efficacious in the godless, as Paul says, Ephesians 2.2, 2, does not cease to incite this feeble nature to various offenses. These are the reasons why even civil righteousness is rare among men, as we see that not even the philosophers themselves, who seem to have aspired after this righteousness, attained it. But it is false to say that he who performs the works of the commandments without grace does not sin. And they add further that such works also merit de congruo the remission of sins and justification. For human hearts without the Holy Ghost are without the fear of God. Without trust toward God, they do not believe that they are heard, forgiven, helped, and preserved by God. Therefore they are godless. For neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Matthew 7.18 And without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 Therefore, although we concede to free will the liberty and power to perform the outward works of the law, yet we do not ascribe to free will these spiritual matters, namely, truly to fear God, truly to believe God, truly to be confident and hold that God regards us, hears us, forgives us, and so forth. These are the true works of the first table, which the heart cannot render without the Holy Ghost, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, that is, man using only natural strength, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That is, a person who is not enlightened by the Spirit of God does not by his natural reason receive anything of God's will and divine matters. And this can be decided if men consider what their hearts believe concerning God's will, whether they are truly confident that they are regarded and heard by God. Even for saints to retain this faith, and as Peter says, 1 Peter 1.8, to risk and commit himself entirely to God whom he does not see, to love Christ and esteem him highly whom he does not see, is difficult. So far is it from existing in the godless. But it is conceived, as we have said above, when terrified hearts hear the gospel and receive consolation, when we are born anew of the Holy Ghost. 
Therefore such a distribution is of advantage, in which civil righteousness is ascribed to the free will, and spiritual righteousness to the governing of the Holy Ghost and the regenerate. For thus the outward discipline is retained, because all men ought to know equally both that God requires this civil righteousness, God will not tolerate indecent, wild, reckless conduct, and that, in a measure, we can afford it. And yet a distinction is shown between human and spiritual righteousness, between philosophical doctrine and the doctrine of the Holy Ghost, and it can be understood for what there is need of the Holy Ghost. Nor has this distribution been invented by us, but Scripture most clearly teaches it. Augustine also treats of it, and recently it has been well treated of by William of Paris. But it has been wickedly suppressed by those who have dreamt that men can obey God's law without the Holy Ghost, but that the Holy Ghost is given in order that, in addition, it may be considered meritorious. Of the Cause of Sin, Augustana 19 The nineteenth article the adversaries receive, in which we confess that, although God only and alone has framed all nature and preserves all things which exist, yet he is not the cause of sin, but the cause of sin is the will in the devil and men turning itself away from God, according to the saying of Christ concerning the devil, John 8.44, When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. Of Good Works, Augustana 20 In the twentieth article they distinctly lay down these words, namely, that they reject and condemn our statement that men do not merit the remission of sins by good works. Mark this well. They clearly declare that they reject and condemn this article. What is to be said on a subject so manifest? Here the framers of the confutation openly show by what spirit they are led. For what in the church is more certain than that the remission of sins occurs freely for Christ's sake? That Christ, and not our works, is the propitiation for sins, as Peter says, Acts 10.43, To him give all the prophets witness, that through his name whosoever believeth on him shall receive remission of sins. This strong testimony of all the holy prophets may duly be called the decree of the Catholic Christian Church. For even a single prophet is very highly esteemed by God, and a treasure worth the whole world. To this church of the prophets we would rather assent than to these abandoned writers of the confutation, who so impudently blaspheme Christ. For although there were writers who held that after the remission of sins men are just before God not by faith but by works themselves, yet they did not hold this, namely, that the remission of sins itself occurs on account of our works and not freely for Christ's sake. Therefore the blasphemy of ascribing Christ's honor to our works is not to be endured. These theologians are now entirely without shame if they dare to bring such an opinion into the church. Nor do we doubt that his most excellent imperial majesty, and very many of the princes, would not have allowed this passage to remain in the confutation if they had been admonished of it. Here we could cite infinite testimonies from Scripture and from the Fathers, that this article is certainly divine and true, and this is the sacred and divine truth. For there is hardly a syllable, hardly a leaf in the Bible, in the principal books of the Holy Scriptures, where this is not clearly stated. But also above we have said enough on this subject, and there is no need of more testimonies, for one who knows why Christ has been given to us 
who knows that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. God-fearing pious hearts, that know well why Christ has been given, who for all the possessions and kingdoms of the world would not be without Christ as our only treasure, our only mediator and redeemer, must here be shocked and terrified that God's holy word and truth should be so openly despised and condemned by poor men. Isaiah says, 53.6, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. The adversaries, on the other hand, accuse Isaiah and the entire Bible of lying, teach that God lays our iniquities not on Christ, but on our beggarly works. Neither are we disposed to mention here the sort of works, rosaries, pilgrimages, and the like which they teach. We see that a horrible decree has been prepared against us, which would terrify us still more if we were contending concerning doubtful or trifling subjects. Now, since our consciences understand that by the adversaries the manifest truth is condemned, whose defense is necessary for the church and increases the glory of Christ, we easily despise the terrors of the world, and with a strong spirit will bear whatever is to be suffered for the glory of Christ and the advantage of the church. Who would not rejoice to die in the confession of such articles as that we obtain the remission of sins by faith freely for Christ's sake? that we do not merit the remission of sins by our works. Experience shows, and the monks themselves must admit it, that the consciences of the pious will have no sufficiently sure consolation against the terrors of sin and of death, and against the devil soliciting to despair, and who in a moment blows away all our works like dust, if they do not know that they ought to be confident that they have the remission of sins freely for Christ's sake. This faith sustains and quickens hearts in the most violent conflict with despair, in the great agony of death, in the great anguish, when no creature can help, yea, when we must depart from this entire visible creation into another state and world, and must die. Therefore, the cause is one which is worthy, that for its sake we should refuse no danger. Whosoever you are that has assented to our confession, do not yield to the wicked, but, on the contrary, go forward the more boldly, when the adversaries endeavor, by means of terrors and tortures and punishments, to drive away from you that consolation which has been tendered to the entire church in this article of ours, but with all cheerfulness rely confidently and gladly on God and the Lord Jesus, and joyfully confess this manifest truth in opposition to the tyranny, wrath, threatening, and terrors of all the world yea, in opposition to the daily murders and persecution of tyrants. For who would suffer to have taken from him this great, yea, everlasting consolation on which the entire salvation of the whole Christian church depends? Anyone who picks up the Bible and reads it earnestly will soon observe that this doctrine has its foundation everywhere in the Bible. Testimonies of Scripture will not be wanting to one seeking them, which will establish his mind. For Paul, at the top of his voice, as the saying is, cries out, Romans 3.24 and following, and 4.16, that sins are freely remitted for Christ's sake. It is of faith, he says, that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure. That is, if the promise would depend upon our works, it would not be sure. If remission of sins would be given on account of our works, when would we know that we had obtained it? When would a terrified conscience find a work which it would consider sufficient to appease God's wrath? 
But we spoke of the entire matter above. Thence let the reader derive testimonies. For the unworthy treatment of the subject has forced from us the present not discussion, but complaint, that on this topic they have distinctly recorded themselves as disapproving of this article of ours, that we obtain remission of sins not on account of our works, but by faith, and freely on account of Christ. The adversaries also add testimonies to their own condemnation, and it is worthwhile to recite several of them. They quote from Second Peter 1.10, Give diligence to make your calling sure, and so forth. Now you see, reader, that our adversaries have not wasted labor in learning logic, but have the art of inferring from the Scriptures whatever pleases them, whether it is in harmony with the Scriptures or out of harmony, whether it is correctly or incorrectly concluded. For they conclude thus, Make your calling sure by good works. Therefore, works merit the remission of sins. A very agreeable mode of reasoning, if one would argue thus concerning a person sentenced to capital punishment, whose punishment has been remitted. The magistrate commands that hereafter you abstain from that which belongs to another. Therefore you have merited the remission of the penalty, because you are now abstaining from what belongs to another. Thus to argue is to make a cause out of that which is not a cause. For Peter speaks of works following the remission of sins, and teaches why they should be done, namely, that the calling may be sure, that is, lest they may fall from their calling if they sin again. Do good works that you may persevere in your calling, that you do not fall away again, grow cold, and may not lose the gifts of your calling, which were given you before, and not on account of works that follow, and which now are retained by faith. For faith does not remain in those who lose the Holy Ghost, who reject repentance, just as we have said above, that faith exists in repentance. They add other testimonies, cohering no better. Lastly, they say that this opinion was condemned a thousand years before, in the time of Augustine. This also is quite false, for the Church of Christ always held that the remission of sins is obtained freely. Yea, the Pelagians were condemned, who contended that grace is given on account of our works. Besides, we have above shown sufficiently that we hold that good works ought necessarily to follow faith. For we do not make void the law, says Paul, Romans 3.31, Yea, we establish the law, because when by faith we have received the Holy Ghost, the fulfilling of the law necessarily follows, by which love, patience, chastity, and other fruits of the Spirit gradually grow. End of Article 8